If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 15. Here's, here's what I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do since we're kind of having to make some of these changes on the, on the fly at the last minute. Uh, I don't have any notes. That's not so much of a change. Rarely what I have is, could be called notes. Uh, I don't have anything as far as PowerPoint goes. So what we're going to try to do, I'm going to try to maybe draw your attention to two points in Romans 5, 15 through 17. And then as we transition to the Lord's Supper, I'm going to try to draw out maybe two more points in verses 18 through, through 21. Uh, our adult Sunday school classes have been working our way through the book of Romans. It's a year-long process. We're hoping, anticipating that we're going to have all this done by the time we get to the end of the calendar year. And so, uh, I don't know, it's fresh on my mind probably fresh on some of yours. Um, if you haven't been in Sunday morning Bible study, what is wrong with you? You should be there getting this stuff. Okay, here we go. Let me pray, and then we'll start. Father, who is adequate for these things, to, to stand and to proclaim the goodness of your message, to try to capture, even in some small way, the fullness of your glory, the greatness of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. We're so tempted, Father, to do everything according to our own, our own strength in our flesh, according to our wisdom, and yet we ask that by your, um, by your grace that you would just cause everything that happens uh, in this service, what's already transpired, what's about to take place, uh, to be driven by the power of your Holy Spirit, that he would guide and direct us, that he would give us understanding and insight. Father, that not only would we rejoice at the truth as we see it in the pages of Scripture, but that um, our hearts would be changed by it so that we would go forth from here thinking and feeling and living differently. Thank you for your word, which is good and profitable at all times. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. You can follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so if it sounds a little bit different from the version that you have, that's okay. Paul has been talking about the results of Adam's sin, starting in Romans 5.12, and talking about as a result of Adam's one sin, sin enters into the entire creation and comes to all people, and because sin goes to all people, death comes to all people. And then he says in Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the transgression, and he's talking about the transgression of Adam where he broke the boundary line, or stepped over the command that God had given him in the garden. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. And here's where you, I want you to pay attention. This is what we're going to be focusing on. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. 
But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. It should be easy enough to track with, hopefully, Paul has two categories here that he lays out. Each of the categories, two possible classifications that you can have or two groups that you can be placed in. The individual that heads up the first group is Adam. And as he goes through and he talks about what Adam has brought and everyone who is descended from Adam, from Adam's line, what they receive from Adam, it's all negative. It's sin, it's death, it's judgment, it's condemnation, all those things. But then there's another group that's headed up under the person of Jesus Christ. And everything that comes from Christ, from Jesus, to those who find their life in Him, get the mirror opposite. In fact, Paul would say not just the mirror opposite, they get exponentially the opposite of what they had in their forefather Adam. And he says things like they get righteousness and life and gift and grace. What I want to draw your attention to, just because of the limited time that we have, are a couple of these statements that Paul makes in verses 16 and 17. Notice that Paul says in verse 16 that the gift, what we receive, the gift that we receive from Christ is not like the transgression. It's not like what we give from Adam. And he, he explains it this way. Here's why they are not the same. On the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. One transgression. One disobedient act one breaking of one command, don't eat from this tree. And Adam does. He does that one thing. And as a result of the one sin, one act of disobedience, what's the result? Everything is ruined. Adam's relationship with his creator and with his king is severed. The harmony that existed between he and his wife, and from there, his children, descendants, that harmony has been destroyed. Now, what is meant to be an enjoyable relationship, compatibility, working for the common good, is going to see nothing but conflict and friction and strife. Adam was meant to enjoy all the fullness of God's creation in the garden, uninterrupted, Instead, he's kicked out. He can never return. He's going to have to work hard to find anything worthwhile or profitable that comes from the ground. Pain is introduced. And after a long, hard, toiling life, Adam dies. And everyone who comes after him gets the same thing. A long, hard life that ends in death. Paul will go on to say in Romans 8 
that it's not just us people who groan under the weight of sin, but creation itself groans under the weight of sin. Creation has been broken because of one act of disobedience, one transgression. Hurricanes, floods, disease, death, birth defects, terminal illnesses. All of these things happen because of one act of disobedience. The question then is, if one act of disobedience brings all of this death and destruction and misery and pain and weight and burden, what must innumerable transgressions bring? That was a just penalty that Adam and his descendants received for one act of disobedience. Is it even possible for us to imagine what must be due for a hundred acts of disobedience? A thousand? Ten thousand? A million? How many acts of disobedience have been committed in the history of humanity? And if one act of disobedience at the very beginning brought about the consequences that we suffer now, what must innumerable acts of disobedience and sin and transgression bring about? Can you do the math? Paul lays out the math this way. He says, in Adam, one act of disobedience brings judgment and condemnation. In Christ, Many acts of disobedience bring what? Innumerable judgment? Infinite condemnation? That's what you would expect, right? If one brought X, then ten times that must bring ten times X. But he says just the opposite. He says, rather than innumerable, seemingly infinite sin bringing infinite judgment that cannot even be counted, as sin multiplied and as disobedience increased, rather than bringing more judgment, God brought more grace. That kind of math doesn't add up. Now, understand, it's disappointingly, frustratingly common these days to hear statements like this made from a, from a statement like what Paul just made, right? You use the math analogy. If one transgression equals this, then innumerable transgressions must mean innumerable. But since it doesn't, well, what did God do? God reworked the math, Right? Yes, God knows how to add, He knows how to multiply, so on and so forth, but because of you, He rewrote math. It's the new math. Yay, common core for God version or something like that. I don't know. And He rewrote the rules of math so that instead of giving you the equation that you deserve, the sum that you deserve, He's now able to give you a different sum. People, that is not what God did. God did not change 
the rules of math. He did not change the laws of nature. He did not change the laws of holiness and righteousness so that he could be kind to you and to me. He maintained those laws and those rules. He upheld them, but instead of having the rule and the law of judgment break on your head, he caused it to break on the head of his son. He did not water it down. He did not change the rules. He maintained the rules, but he caused it to be given to someone else in your place so that instead of getting the judgment that we deserve, we're able to get what we certainly don't deserve. The gift of forgiveness and grace. And then on top of that, notice what he says in verse 17. If by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. If by the transgression of the one, if because of sin, death reigned, death became king and ruled over creation so that no one could escape death, Death was a tyrant. Death was the master over all that God had created. Everything dies. How, how total does death reign in this creation? How complete, how full is death in this creation? How certain is death in this creation? Barring any unforeseen miraculous events, any of you expecting not to die? Anyone? Okay. As full, as heavy, as certain as death is, do you realize Paul says, much more is the life that reigns through the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you know what that means? That means that the weight of death pales in comparison to the weight of the glory of life that is in Jesus Christ. That means that as certain as what your death is, more certain than your death is your life with Christ. I don't know about you, it is near impossible, I think it is impossible, just for myself, to wrap my head around that, because death is everywhere around us. I, I can conceive of the certainty of death, but to say that there is life that is more certain than the certainty of death is something that knocks my categories out of the water. I, I don't know how to conceive of that, but that's what Paul says. Much more then the rule and the reign of death is the rule and the reign of life in Christ Jesus. As we then transition to this time of communion, to the Lord's Supper, this is what we are celebrating. We're celebrating the fact that what we remember is that of all the acts of sin and disobedience that we've ever committed or ever will commit, that we did not receive the judgment that we deserve. We should expect to find 
as the sum total of our life, infinite judgment and death and suffering and misery. And yet, because God calls that suffering and that misery to be handed to His Son, now we don't get what we do deserve and we do get what we don't deserve. And we also celebrate the fact that because of the fact that Jesus died in our place as our substitute, being punished for our sin, for our disobedience, that as certain as his death was, and it was a real death, as certain as his resurrection was and is, that is how certain our life is in Christ. More permanent, more lasting, more certain even, then your death is your life in Christ. Before we begin to partake of the elements, let's talk for just a minute about what happens here. Jesus instituted this practice with his disciples on the night before his death. He took bread and he broke it. He said, the breaking of this bread is like the breaking of my body that's about to happen. I'm being broken essentially so that you can be made whole. And he took the wine in the cup and he said, this wine represents my blood, this blood that purchases, that pays for this new covenant arrangement that my people will now begin to enjoy. One of the interesting things, though, about communion at the Lord's Supper is that back at the time, it was just that. It was, a, it was a supper. It was a meal. The part that we focus on, of course, is, is an essential part. It's the one part that we sort of try to repeat or duplicate here in, in a sort of limited fashion. But prior to all that, Jesus would have enjoyed a normal meal with his disciples, perhaps a Passover meal, but a meal nonetheless, and the meal in that type of setting was significant because it was a way to express love and appreciation. It was a way to express some sort of uh, relational tie or fellowship, hospitality. So when we come to the table, this table, even though in miniature form, in some ways represents the fact that we have been brought to this end-time feast that God is storing up for all of his followers, for all of his children, for all of his disciples. There are a couple ways that the significance of this table plays out in some of the things that Paul says in Romans. Notice, for example, going back to Romans chapter 5, Paul says this in verse 18, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Through Christ's one act of obedience on the cross, his death, we have been justified, which means we have been declared right in our standing before God. In terms of 
the analogy or the illustration of a meal, God, through Christ, has made all the necessary payments to provide a seat for you at the table. He's paid for everything that needs to happen in order for provision to be made for you to sit and for you to eat. And he only does that for his family. He only does that for his children. He's the one that makes it possible for you to come and feast and dine with him. But there's a second part to this. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. You see, it's not just that he calls us righteous, but that he makes us righteous. And this is the way it works in terms of the the supper analogy. Only those who have been admitted into the family have the privilege of being able to come to the table and to feast on the banquet that's prepared and offered through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are blessings that are only shared by the family. It's offered to anyone. Anyone can become part of the family, but it's only those who are given access to the family that are able to participate in that. But here's the thing. Merely being granted a seat at the table is not where this whole process begins and ends. Because everyone knows that admittance into a family, being part of a family, means that however subtly, however slowly it may happen, you begin to take on the traits of the family. Families, as they stand in distinction, they think certain ways, they act certain ways, they live certain ways, and your immersion, your part in the family means that whether you realize it or not, you begin to adopt some of those characteristics, and that's what Paul is saying here. For everyone who is declared right and declared to be part of the family who can come and sit at the table, God does not just simply call them my son or my daughter, but he makes them look like his son and his daughter, which means he makes them look like God, he makes them look like Jesus. So there are two ways in which I would encourage you to celebrate this repetition of communion, Lord's Supper. One is to remind yourself of the fact that your access, your free participation in this family meal is just that. It is free. You didn't pay for it. You couldn't have paid for it. Everything that was necessary to secure this feast and to provide you a seat at the table was paid for by Christ himself, and he gives it to you as a gift. But second, to also remember that being brought into the family and being being given a seat at the table does not mean that he is encouraging fat, lazy, lethargic kids. He brings them to the, fab- to the table to feed them, to nourish them, so that they can be built up and take on the characteristics of their father and take characteristics of their elder brother, Jesus Christ. You are completely safe in your relationship with Jesus Christ, but you are not free to be static and immovable. You will change. 
but he'll do that change for you as well. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy that follows us all the days of our lives, not because we sought it, not because we deserve it, but because you have caused us to be placed into the work of your Son. Thank you that it is merely by faith. We just simply trust in the promises of God. We believe what it is that you offer. And simply for believing, all of the blessings that come through Christ are given to us. We ask now that as we come to this observance of the Lord's Supper, that we would be mindful of the fact that we are here by grace, that we did not earn our access to this feast, to this meal, but that your grace is also a transforming grace that no longer allows us to remain in the old habits, the old ways, the old looks that were ours before we were adopted and brought into our union with Christ. Would you, by the power of your Spirit, continue to change us and it's in the name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen. I'll go ahead and ask the men to come up. We'll have men stationed for each section of pews. One of our deacons will come forward and row by row they'll release you to come up to the front. You'll be handed a piece of bread. You can dip it in the juice and then partake of communion in that fashion after you've received your portion you can simply return to your seat we'll have some music being sung as we go through this process you're welcome to sing along you're welcome just to sit quietly and meditate and reflect perhaps open the pages of scripture and read meditate but as uh, the men come to your aisle and release you come participate with joy and thanksgiving and reflect on the grace that's been made available to you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ one last passage, building on the dinner feast, the banquet analogy of being brought to the table to feed and to feast on what it is that God has provided through Christ. This is in Isaiah 25, starting at verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Part of what we have just done here is a reminder of what we are already enjoying, but admittedly only enjoying in part. There is in Scripture always a view to what's, what lies ahead, the fact that this meal, this feast, this seating at the table is just a, a small reflection, an image of the real ultimate feast that's going to be had when God's kingdom is set up perfectly and fully on earth. And so the encouragement that we have is that for all who have been admitted to this meal in the here and now, May 1st, 2016, have already been granted access to the ultimate feast, the ultimate banquet in the age to come.
Bow with me in prayer. Father, how could we ever say thank you for the gift of salvation in all its fullness, not just simply pardon from the penalty of sin, but freedom from the power of sin. Ultimately, one day, as we see in Isaiah 25, even freedom from the very presence of sin. Would you cause this church body, this family here at Edgewood, to grow in all respects in that salvation life that you have provided that we would not only find grace and humility in this new status that has been bought and purchased for us, but that we would also uh, be gratefully transformed into people who look more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this gift, this ordinance of communion, the Lord's Supper, to be able to bring those things back to our mind. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to take a few moments here, maybe about five minutes, uh, for you to have an opportunity just to um, get up from where you're seated if you'd like. You don't have to. Um, but if you'd like to just express some encouragement, um, some words of kindness or love motivation to some of your brothers or sisters here um, that you see in the, uh, in the sanctuary, you're welcome to do that. If you'd like to just remain seated and continue to sing along with the music or reflect further on Scripture, you're welcome to do that. If... And listen carefully, please. If you're here this morning, and the things that we've been talking about are things that perhaps you've heard before, maybe you've never heard it before, and it sounds good, but you don't know it from experience, this being declared right, this being made new and transformed, this being granted access, being adopted into God's family, I would encourage you Come down to the front. I'll, I'll speak with you. We're not going to do anything wild and crazy with you, but just give us an opportunity to be able to talk through this with you more or at least to be able to provide an opportunity to do that later because it is the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive and it's already been secured and paid for. It's just waiting for you to come and take it. At the uh, end of this little five-minute period, We'll bring everyone back. We'll formally close out the service and we'll be done for this morning. Uh, so you just move as you feel led or as you feel free to do for these next couple minutes as Andy leads us with some music.